Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Today, we present episode 408, Dr. Dan, on where we are with COVID today. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Awesome. All right. The last two years, uh, I've been in a hospital hole <laughs> handling COVID. So, yeah, uh, I've been taking care of COVID patients since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the very first cases that we had, some of the first cases that we had. And I remember when we had our first case, well, that, at least that we knew of. So. I started working at a new hospital, and <laughs> I, the, my first day in the hospital was in February of 2020. I said, like, okay, well, how are you guys preparing for this? And they're like, well, you know, we got some HEPA filters, and like, okay, are you stockpiling N95s? Like, what is our testing route? And they're like, well, testing's gonna take about a week. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole, the whole situation was, was bad from the beginning because we dramatically underestimated this. And it was, it was already here, and we were still asking people if they had been to China before we were testing them. So it's been a rough two years. But at the same time, I also see things, there is a path forward, there is a path to the end, and I, I alluded to this in my talk yesterday. Like COVID-19 is, uh, and SARS-CoV-2, is a, is a fixable problem. People say, you know, this is gonna be something seasonal that we're gonna have for years. It doesn't have to be. I mean, I see this, I see this more like smallpox and polio in that it's eradicatable, uh, rather than I see it as something like influenza where it'll be seasonal and it's much more difficult to eradicate. And part of that is because we have the efforts of the entire global scientific community working on this one problem. And when you put all the funding and all the smartest people into a, into a single problem, you get some good results. So, you know, the, the theme of this is going to be more, much more optimistic than gloom and doom. And I'm going to share with you a lot of, of things that I use to kind of help my patients, especially help the folks who are vaccine hesitant. I talk a lot about, you know, where to get solid news, because I think that is a deficiency for a lot of folks, is that they get their news from like CNN or other news sources that may actually focus more on emotional and sort of reactionary journalism and not interpret what you should take away correctly from it. Come on in. Uh, sorry, Woody, you're gonna have to edit all this out. The door was locking. He's recording it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I can say, I can totally lie right now and say like, I can't believe we had 800 people show up for this talk this morning. Woo! Yeah! Woo! For the podcast, baby! <laughs> All right, so disclaimer, just like the disclaimer I gave yesterday, I am a physician, but I'm not your personal physician unless I am, and then I can't say anything. Um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, this is for primarily for educational purposes, but also I want it to be pragmatic for everybody. So I want this to be applicable. I want this you to walk out of here knowing more, but also I want to use this knowledge to better my situation during the pandemic. So, all right, things we're gonna cover. So factors that influence transmission and how to best mitigate them. 
because we're all, like we talked about yesterday, being risk aware and then learning how to mitigate those risks the best you can, knowing that you can never really get to absolute zero. Um, so special circumstances specifically for the polykin communities, what vaccination does and doesn't do, um, and then some really cool stuff of what is coming soon, what's coming down the pipeline, and then we're gonna spend the last part talking about how to convince others, because I'm sure you all have either partners or family that you're probably struggling with that haven't been vaccinated. Everybody here has, so. All right. Nobody is laughing at the stuff in the corner, so maybe, maybe the jokes will only get worse. All right, so everyone in the room, thank you for being vaccinated, first of all. Um, so right now we have 11 variants of SARS-CoV-2, but Delta has, has taken over, at least in the US, and is almost exclusively the Delta variant now. And why that's important is compared to the, the primarily alpha variant that, uh, that we had from the UK last year, so Delta is twice as infectious, so you're, you're more like, you're, you spread it to twice as many people as you would with the Alpha variant. It also, you also become uh, contagious earlier with Delta variant. So with the strains that we had from last year, it was typically about four days, four to five days uh, after you're exposed before you would be contagious or, and, usually, and symptomatic, uh, although you can have no symptoms as well. But Delta, you're actually typically contagious earlier. Um, younger people, are much more younger people are being hospitalized this time around. And that younger people that's being hospitalized is typically almost exclusively unvaccinated. And then breakthrough infections, which I'm sure you have all have heard about, but that really needs, you really need context on that. So we'll talk about that too. Um, and keep in mind, as always in this pandemic, you can still spread the virus before you have symptoms, which is called pre-symptomatic transmission, or some folks just never develop symptoms. They're like, well, you know, I tested positive, but I never actually had any symptoms. So uh, that continues to be an issue. All right, so how is it spread? I'm sure you guys, most of, the, most of you know this by this point, but it's respiratory droplets. Um, but there are, there are certain factors to take into account, and I think it's really important to focus in on these. So. Time is a very important thing. Um, so the, the consideration for a high-risk exposure is if you're within of a symptomatic person or infectious person, 15 minutes. So a lot of people were always scared that like, I need to wear my mask so I'm like jogging through the park. That is the lowest risk trend, like the lowest risk environment uh, is temporary exposure to somebody. Uh, but there are things that will give you a higher infectious dose in a shorter amount of time. So like things like you do at a con, kissing, spitting on people, and singing, or sometimes all three. So, and then yeah, the environment in which transmission occurs is really important. Um, outdoor environments being far, far, far less likely to transmit coronavirus unless you're packed tight at something like an outdoor festival. Think like Music Midtown from back in the day. Um, because the fact that the transmission dynamics and the infectious dose is reduced by humidity, the, part, the viral particles will drop to the ground faster. Um, and then air circulation and currents. So, and we're gonna talk about using these things in our mitigation techniques later. So yeah, masks and hand hygiene. Uh, hand hygiene primarily so you're not getting infected droplets on your hands and then rubbing your mouth, your nose, et cetera. Being vaccinated, of course, incredibly important in preventing both 
primarily hospitalization and severe disease, but it also reduces symptomatic disease too. The prevalence, eventually we'll get to a point where certain, and unfortunately this is coming, uh, where we will have hotspots of the country where there's circulating coronaviruses, and then other parts of the country where there's almost none, and that's going to happen. And you'll have these sort of hyper-local outbreaks where you'll have a totally unvaccinated area uh, in a rural place where someone will come in and essentially it'll infect almost everybody there. And that's, that's where we're going. But the second to last thing on here is one of the most important things to keep in mind. The person most likely to infect you lives with you. And the environment of transmission is typically within, within your house or your car. Um, the exception to this, of course, being for, for kids that are under the age of 12. Schools are uh, a high risk and daycares are very high risk for, for transmission. But what's happening now is, and why that's important is because prolonged contact and typically those are environments where people aren't wearing masks. So keep in mind, the vaccine doesn't keep the virus from getting in you. It's not a force field. The vaccine is designed to keep you from being hospitalized. That is the primary uh, focus of the vaccination, and it does that extremely well. So, and then the final thing is, what is my expected outcome? Because that is going to determine your level of risk. So, and by expected outcome, we, there's certain groups that do worse. So, the highest risk group are folks over the age of 65, so they account for over 80% of deaths. Um, those folks who are taking chronic immunosuppression, this can be for stuff like rheumatoid arthritis. It could be for organ transplantation. Um, and the vaccination efficacy is also affected by this. So uh, vaccination efficacy is reduced if you're on, like say chronic prednisone, um, if you had something like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, or if you're taking uh, medications for psoriasis, a lot of times those will also, uh, the biological medications will decrease the vaccine efficacy. And those particular groups are the most, those are the highest target groups for the third dose, for the, the booster dose. And we'll talk about booster later too, because there's a lot of confusion. So folks with active cancer, chronic lung disease, and if you're a smoker, there's no better time to quit smoking. Um, because that's true, like smokers have worse outcomes um, when it comes to hospitalization uh, from COVID. So diabetes, heart failure, you guys see all this. Preg pregnancy is a big one too. So. Earlier, um, when the vaccines first came out, it was always this big, was not studied in pregnant women flag. And providers were, I think, anxious to vaccinate folks who were pregnant, or some folks even saying like, well, you're considering pregnancy, then don't get vaccinated. So two things that need to be addressed. One, there is no fertility detriment to getting vaccination. I don't know how this is being spread, or and there's no mechanism for it either. But we have solid data to back this up now. So we looked at um, rates of miscarriages for vaccinated people versus unvaccinated people, and they're identical. So if, if vaccination was causing spontaneous abortion miscarriages, we would be seeing higher rates of that. And we don't, so it's bullshit. And people are having children at the same rate. Like you don't have, you can combat a lot of these things with actual data, and the data is fairly easy to find. So when you have people that are spouting out all sorts of bullshit misinformation, being able to combat it with data, I think, is helpful. 
But unfortunately, like we talked about yesterday, you're going up against confirmation bias for people who haven't been vaccinated. So they, they're going on with what they feel. But we're also going to use that against them. We're going to use that confirmation bias as a weapon against them later when we help convince them to get vaccinated. All right, so pregnant people should get vaccinated. And we've now looked at getting vaccinated every single trimester of pregnancy, and we're not seeing significant safety concerns for vaccinating during pregnancy. What we are seeing, though, is that pregnant women who get COVID are much more likely to be hospitalized, and there have been um, mothers and fetal loss due to COVID-19, and it's also associated with preterm birth. So pregnant women, up until a couple of months ago when I last heard the statistics, were the lowest vaccinated group in the country. Only 22% were vaccinated. So if you know someone that's pregnant, really, really, really talk to them about this and say, look, I know initially it wasn't studied in pregnant individuals, but now since then it has been. And a big part of that research data in that pool was um, people who got vaccinated, a lot of healthcare workers, uh, that got vaccinated and then became pregnant. And we were monitoring them through VSafe and VAERS, which if you guys got vaccinated, did you, get, did you do the little text message thing from VSafe? Do you remember doing that? Oh, okay. It was an optional thing you can sign up for. And what it is is, um, yeah, CDC and the FDA collect data, um, optional data from folks who have been vaccinated where they can kind of report, you know, have you had any health outcomes at this many weeks after vaccination so um, all right so special considerations for folks specifically in the poly kink community is that when you have multiple partners and you're also having prolonged exposures you get that hyperlocal you could potentially get that hyperlocal outbreak that I talked about earlier um, so that's a big deal and then kids that are under 12 that haven't been vaccinated are amazing disease vectors um, specifically for kink folks, prolonged co close contact when you're doing a scene. Then there's the mental health issues, the feeling like a lack of intimacy if you haven't been seeing a partner or if you've been distancing or isolated. Um, Undervaccinated people in a polycule and then mask use among romantic partners or in a scene is just gonna be less likely. Yeah, you could probably close it at this point unless the mask counter comes, or not the mask counter, the audience counter. Yeah. They oh, they already did? Oh, we're good. Cool. Plus if I somebody. Yeah, so getting back to the sort of hyper-local outbreak, multiple partners. All right, so you can use the fact that Delta becomes symptomatic and you test positive earlier to your advantage. Um, so are you guys familiar with antigen testing? I think we're all familiar with PCR testing, but antigen testing, you guys are? Okay, excellent. So there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to the antigen test. They're not, the PCR is considered the gold standard as far as sensitivity goes, but not everyone has the ability to, you know, go to get tested at a drive-through or, um, or go to a clinician's office and get it done. And then there's also a waiting period. The advantage of antigen testing is the fact that you get results quicker. It, the sensitivity is not as high, but in this case, you, you may not necessarily need it because you're really, you really want, it. so the, the positive predictive value, so when it's positive, 
there's a very high likelihood that it's a true positive. It's the negative predictive value of, of antigen tests that's not as good as the PCR test. Um, so it's good at detecting very high levels of virus. Antigen is fairly comparable to PCR, which is good because that, when the levels are high, that means you're the most infectious. So um, the disadvantages, we already kind of talked about that, more likely to be falsely negative in asymptomatic people. Uh, but you can mitigate that by doing repeat antigen testing over multiple days. So um, as the, you would expect the virus levels to increase over time, so eventually it will reach the, the threshold where the test will become positive. What I recommend folks do is, and um, especially if you're going to do an event like Frolicon or if you're, you're spending time with like a new partner, a prolonged period of time, you're not going to use masks. Um, test four days before and four days after is a good testing strategy. If you can do PCR testing, perfect. Antigen testing otherwise is okay. If you're positive before the event, don't go to the event. Um, so Robin and I went to a Dark Odyssey event, uh, the Dark Odyssey summer camp, and they were mandating vaccination just like this. It was outdoors. Um, they also had a optional get tested, PCR tested, was it 72 hours beforehand? Yeah. Um, that way, you know, you would know if you were positive that you should stay home. But they also had folks get tested in this, I think, four, four days after people came back, yeah. So they were testing, uh, people were testing four days after they came back and then reporting their testing status. Again, this was not mandatory. You couldn't enforce that. But people were still doing it, which was great. So we found out that at the event, only one person was positive. Uh, and then that person came forward and said, I am this person, I was wearing this or this scene name, you know, and I spent, I may, if I spent time with you, you know, you should consider getting tested, which is great. And like, it was a very smart and accepting thing to do. And then we were able to better risk mitigate because of that. You're never going to get to zero. You're never going to have a complete 0% chance of risk, but that was doing things right. I'm going to stop right here really quick. Does anyone have any questions so far? Because I know I covered a lot of data right there. A lot of stuff. Hit me. Um, tell me a little more about like, the at-home like, antigen test. Because mm -hmm. the one I'm thinking of is like the blood test, but I don't see how that would be at home. Like, I think I've got the wrong idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So typically the antigen tests are either going to be an oropharyngeal or a nasopharyngeal. Yeah, I'm thinking about the antibody test. The antibody test is the blood uh, right. test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the antigen test is going to be somewhat similar to the the PCR. So the PCR test is using polymerase chain uh, amplification. So, but an antigen an antigen test simply is looking for a part of the virus, and it typically will use um, without getting like too complicated on this. Uh, the, the antigen test will have like a antibody that binds to it that may have like a fluorescence. So if it binds to it, it will then fluoresce. Uh, so the, the advantage of the antibody test is that you will get results within 15 to 30 minutes of doing it. So it's very fast and it's typically very easy and hard, and hard to mess up. And they're, and they're available like at pharmacies and Amazon and things like that. Go for it. Or is yeah. it like a mouth swab or is it a blood test? Oh, so it's not, it's not a blood test. 
So okay. it'll. So it is a nasal swab. Just or yeah, it'll either be a, a nasal or an oropharyngeal. Yeah. So I mean, you you can do. There's different specimens that you can use. Uh, so yeah, there's nasal, there's deeper back nasal pharyngeal, and then there's even saliva testing that you can use. Um, so and the these tests will rely on different ones. So a lot of the ones I've seen use a, like a little nasal swab that you can use, and they're fine. Um, one of the big concerns, and it's not in here, though, is is just making sure that your testing method has been at least like looked at by the FDA <laughs> and making sure it's not bootleg. There is a fact. There is an interesting bullet point from CDC talking about the the KN95 masks that everyone wears. That 60% of them are are counterfeit, which is a little nerve wracking. Um, so antigen testing, I think, is a really good way to reduce or mitigate risk as best as you can, especially for a large event like this. Um, all right, so Partners for Kids. Keep in mind, a lot of these, uh, that kids under 12 haven't been vaccinated yet. Kids are also much less likely to wear masks. Um, they're also much more likely to have no symptoms. So asymptomatic transmission, like we talked about, is still very common, especially among kids. With the Delta variant, this has changed a little bit. Kids are becoming sicker and requiring hospitalization much more frequently than they were last year. So I don't want to, there was also a big misconception that children are essentially immune or they're, they're not going to get sick enough. They're not going to die. I mean, we've had, when I did my, my video a couple months ago, I mean, it was 400, 400 dead kids at that point. And I, like, I, I love how people are like, yeah, only 400 dead kids. That's not a big deal. Like, that's a huge deal. Uh, and then there's um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome with kids. So we have to, and, and I talked to this, and this is a very good way to help convince people to get vaccinated. You're also helping protect those who haven't had an opportunity to get vaccinated yet. So kids under 12. Um, so a lot of the folks who haven't been vaccinated do have kids. I said, you know, by you getting vaccinated, you're also helping them. So yeah, and we talked about this daycare outbreaks and school outbreaks. So if, if you're in a, a polycule and someone has children, you probably want to really limit your exposure around those kids and absolutely make sure you're wearing masks around them. All right, so Robin can certainly help from here uh, with some of the mental stress aspects. So she's a psychiatric social worker at Grady. But I talked about this. I, th I think this is really important and something I've been harping on is where you get your information from, I think is, is absolutely essential to help kind of mitigate anxiety related to coronavirus. So unfortunately, from a lot of news sources, they're going to harp on things that will draw you in so that you share them. And a lot of times the things that we share are the things that make us afraid, which is why when the vaccines first came out and the safety data was very good, the efficacy data was very good, what did you all hear about? You heard about severe allergic responses, right? And they made it sound like this is something that was happening all over the place, right? They're like, everybody's getting these severe allergies. But that really wasn't the case. So the, the rate of anaphylaxis is between two and 10 per million doses. So it's exceedingly rare, and then it's treatable. So when you got your coronavirus shot, they had you sit in a chair and wait for a while, right? And then they hopefully asked you, do you have a history of severe allergic response or anaphylaxis, right? And if they did, right? They did, right? 
Do you know what happens if you do? They have you wait for 30 minutes, right? And there's actually medical staff on site if you have a reaction. And they can give you, yeah, and they can give you a, a epinephrine, um, Benadryl, I'm Benadryl, and methylprednisolone. So, I mean, they can stop essentially an allergic attack and then get EMS to come get you for something that's already exceedingly rare. I recommend folks to get their information from places that don't get their money from ad revenue because you're going to get more pragmatic and fact-driven and evidence-based advice. And you're also going to get a lot more detail of how they came to that decision. Um, a really cool thing to look for is something called a grade recommendation. This may be a little higher level. This is something that physicians look at. Um, so group, groups like CDC and the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is part of, of CDC, the ACIP, um, they, they put out these things called grade recommendations. And what that is, is it looks at, we're making a recommendation what is the quality of the evidence that backs up that recommendation? Is it high, is it moderate, is it, is it low? Um, so you're looking at, and then they also say, for a particular recommendation, how strongly do we recommend it? So it, you know, do we recommend this strongly, do we rec recommend this moderately or weakly, and then what is the data, what is the evidence behind it? So using that, I think, as sort of a, that's the kind of nuance that we do. What's up? I'm just oh, you're good. You're good. And then making sure to use your vacation days. I can't stress this enough. A lot of us haven't been able to travel, um, but you know, and we've been just driving forward with work. And sometimes it's just best to take take your PTO and relax. You know, decompress, read a book, get your mind off of this. Yep. Ah, they just counted. <laughs> Run out there. Be like. We just doubled in size. <laughs> awesome. Exercise, mental health counseling. I put it for folks in Atlanta. Um, Modern Path is a really great organization. They focus um, specifically for folks in the lifestyle and LGBTQ communities. Positive Impact is another really great organization. Um, I have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline because I think you have to have that in every talk. <laughs> is there any other resources that you have in mind, Robin? Well, there's lots of different resources. I think some of the things that are really important, um, we've noticed that a lot of individuals who have known mental health uh, diagnoses or have been seeking counseling and having counseling for whatever reasons are, uh, are really struggled during COVID because they didn't have in-person visits. Everybody was doing telemedicine, and when you are experiencing high stress or you're really experiencing a crisis in relation to a mental health concern, uh, hooking up a computer phone call, your computer to do a Zoom call about you know what is going on, uh, is is not uh, as effective as an in-person visit. We also have seen that the isolation side of COVID has really had an effect on individuals who have typically not had to engage in regular mental health service, even if they do have a diagnosis or maybe have gone undiagnosed because they're very high functioning um, otherwise. Um, and uh, we are seeing a very high amount at this time of individuals coming in for extreme crisis and requiring hospitalization who have never even had mental health diagnoses ever. 
Um, and it's a, it, it, some of this is related to that isolation piece and the services that have been in the community not being available. And that's not just focused on mental health, but if you think of all of the different social aspects of COVID that have been affected, going to the grocery store, maybe you have small children, maybe you are on WIC, and because there's a shortage of supply, all of the WIC things are gone off the shelves, and now you can't get groceries for your family. That's high stress. That's happening time and time and time and time again, because other people, you know, some people are feeling, seeing lots of things off the shelf, and they're feeling like, I need to hoard, I need to keep this, I need to have all of it for my people. And so it just compounds the problem. So there's a lot of different social aspects that are also affecting people's mental health, not even beyond services being strained and difficult to accomplish. If you are in counseling, if you are receiving mental health care, advocate for yourself. Tell them, I am not doing well talking to you on the computer. I need to see someone face to face. Agencies are safely bringing people back into the outpatient setting. People are being seen live and in person. There are even small groups. They're modifying the group size, things like this, to mitigate risk. Risk is not zero, like Dan said, you know, but we understand that there are things that need to be done to make sure that people are safe and people are receiving the care that they need. So uh, here in Georgia, uh, GCAL is a crisis line that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you live in Metro Atlanta and you call EMS, you're gonna have a Metro EMS is going to come out. They are routed through Grady. We have two trucks that have a behavioral health clinician that drives with the ambulance trucks. And they go out to what sounds like behavioral health calls to try to mitigate the risk at the home and mitigate the possibility that police or other law enforcement or other, I mean, other enforcement agencies would have to get involved so that you as the consumer is going to be safe in that situation. So we're, so each individual area is trying to do what they can do. Um, and uh, But if you have resources, reach out to those natural resources that you already have and ask them, this is not working for me. How can this work better? There are solutions out there. That's great. That's really good, especially the part about in, in person. Mm -hmm. I think that's essential. Because yeah. awesome. that's been a huge stress. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Next thing we're going to talk about, we're going to just jump right off that into beating people. Yes. And <laughs> so when you're, do, when you're doing a scene, yeah, so things like we talked about, mask use may not always be in play, uh, but the prolonged close contact is there. So there are things you can do to mitigate it. So our Dark Odyssey event was outside, um, and they actually had an outdoor dungeon area, which yeah. was kind of nice. All the play space was outside. They had uh, sexo Rama tent all outside. Yep. Everything, that, everything. The sexo, sexo Rama tent needed the ventilation. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oof, my God. Yes. I just wanted to call attention to the good slide joke this time. Excellent work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> like, I heard no laughter at this. I was hoping like the podcast people would be confused because they can't read, they can't read these slides. I, I am concerned about Nurse Bukake's Yeah. Being a healthcare worker and recommending yeah. goop.com 
from? Oh, Nurse Bukake is just here to cause, she, yeah, exactly, she's a nurse, she doesn't know anything. <laughs> she also, interestingly, has uh, five fingers on this hand and then a club. Like, she's like, she's part seal. <laughs> She has a syringe that's larger than her head. So yeah, I put, I, I put stupid puns in, into the presentation rather than saying them. <laughs> so yeah, like using big fans, uh, try to like generate an air current. So remember, infection is tied to infectious dose, right? So being exposed to uh, a small number of viral particles is not going to infect somebody, which is also, keep in mind, when you, um, if you've had COVID-19, you can test positive via the PCR testing for like weeks or months afterwards, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're infectious. What the PCR test is capturing is it's capturing um, bits of, of RNA from COVID-19, and because the PCR test is so sensitive, um, it can, especially uh, at the, would be at like the higher cycle thresholds, yeah. So like the higher cycle thresholds of the PCR test. So you'll have a small number of virus, but you'll still test positive. So you have to be exposed to a certain amount of the virus to actually acquire an infection. And so by using some sort of air current or ventilation um, or HEPA filtration uh, for a room, like hospital rooms use what we call negative pressure. So meaning that outside air is not coming in Wait, is that right? Yes. The, the air in the room isn't coming out. Right, right. I'm sorry, the air in the room isn't coming out. So they actually exhaust it outside of the hospital and then pass it through a filtration system. The air is constantly being filtered um, using outdoor or using masks as well. So, um, I mean, if you're already wearing a ball gag, putting on a surgical mask is not going to be a huge deal. It's breath play. All right. And then unvaccinated partners, we'll talk a lot about this later. Um, you really have to assess, like we talked about, if you have other medical problems, you know, what is your, your tolerance for risk to being with that person? And then as much as possible, try to convince them to get vaccinated. Like, just because you're vaccinated, your, your work is not done yet. Like, this doesn't end until we get to universal global vaccination. Um, and then, yeah, of course, like we talked about, if you're making out with someone, that's very high risk. So using the testing strategy that we talked about earlier. All right, so if you want to convince people, if, if people have a lot of questions about the vaccine, and one of the things I hear the most is, well, you know, I need to do my own research. <laughs> or, you know, I, this vaccine seemed rushed, or, you know, it's a new type. I don't understand how it works. Or some people think it's permanent. I actually, I, I had to try to convince an anti-vaxxer on a podcast recently, and she's like, well, if I take some, if I take ivermectin, I can get my stomach pumped. But if I, if I take a vaccine, how do I get the vaccine out of me? And like the vaccine breaks down, like the mRNA doesn't stay in your body, like it breaks down. So I made this video, um, and if you just shine your phone at that QR code, yeah, it does not link to clown porn. Uh, for the podcast people at home, I'm getting, here, let me describe the QR code for you. Uh, it's got some squares in the top left, top right, bottom left corner, and then some squiggly things. It looks, it looks like the, uh, you're playing the video game Fez. So just follow that. So it is a 
Oh, I can hear myself. That's cool. <laughs> so it's a long video. So it's great for, great for the toilet if you know you're going to spend some time there. Um, the best, the best research is done. Yeah, the best research is done on the toilet. Exactly. Exactly. So it's it's a longer video. I made it back in January, and before I was one of the first people to get the mRNA vaccine. So I got it the. I, I wanted to make a point of getting it the very first week, and then also making a video of myself getting the shot so that people can see the size of the needle, how long it takes. Am I actually like? Do I have any pain? Things like that. Uh, but when I got vaccinated, I did a ton. I mean, obviously, I've been doing the research, but you know, I'm like, this is going to be the first time that we have an, uh, an mRNA vaccine at this scale. So I wanted to make sure I could also, before I got the vaccine, and also so I can explain to my patients, I'm like, all right, safety and efficacy data. Here it is. We had 70,000 people between the Pfizer and Moderna studies for their phase three trials, and that. I think it's really important too that those trials in the US were designed to take into account the different demographics representation in the United States, making sure that they, it wasn't just white people, like they included black, Hispanic, Native American, they included people with, with HIV, they include, they, they incidentally of course had some pregnant people in there. So they said, you know, pregnancy was an exclusion, but people still had sex. So, you know, the, the representative sample from those large phase three studies was the US. Like they really did a good job of representing the US. And I, I think that's important because there, there still is a lot of, of, of medical mistrust um, with different uh, demographics. And I think of vaccination as, as a way to bridge those mistakes of the past that still resonate today. I can't stress that enough. You know, it, Tuskegee was just, is, is the surface, just scratching the surface. Uh, if you look back in the sort of the history, the unfortunate history of the medical field where you see a lot of the older medical schools were funded by, were, by slave owners and how uh, people of color were denied entry from medical schools. They were denied uh, ability to be part of research studies. You know, you have to address that past, like that, and know how that past also uh, impacts our current time, because it still does. But I see vaccination, uh, especially COVID vaccination, as a way to say, like, we care about you. You know, this, this is going to help you, this is gonna help your community so that it isn't just affecting a particular demographic. And so anyway, that was a, a brief divergent. I think this is one of my favorite Nurse Bukaki jokes. Um, no one is laughing. <laughs> All right, so we talked about this a little bit earlier, what the vaccines do and don't do. Uh, so what the vaccine was designed to do and continues to do extremely well is prevent hospitalization requirements for oxygenation and death. So even if it's been six months since you've been vaccinated, you're still between 10 and 22% less likely to be hospitalized if you've been vaccinated. When people say, well, I had COVID-19, so I'm protected, you should still be vaccinated. So the, the vaccine provides, especially if you've already had COVID-19, 
but even if you haven't, provides a more durable, longer lasting immunity. Uh, if you watch my video on how the vaccines work, I use this metaphor. So it's, it's so much more than just antibodies, and it's w a little bit beyond the scope and the length of this talk. But uh, everyone gets obsessed about antibodies, antibodies, antibodies. Are the antibodies levels high? Are they low? Um, antibody levels do correlate with your probability of getting symptomatic infection, but we don't know what level is the amount required. So in other diseases, like that I deal with, like hepatitis B, I know that if someone's antibody titers are above 10, they have protection against hepatitis B. If it's less, I need to vaccinate them. We still don't know the number for COVID-19, but it's so much more than just antibody levels. When you're vaccinating someone, you're, you're developing an immunological memory through essentially training your T cells, your CD4, your CD8 cells. And you also generate these types of cells called plasma cells that produce antibodies. Uh, so you're generating these um, memory B cells and these long-lived plasma cells that when you're exposed to coronavirus again, rapidly recognize it and provide an appropriate immune response, not a immune response that targets your own body. So COVID-19 is divided into the phase of viral replication, the first part of the first phase, uh, and the symptoms associated with that, the loss of smell, the loss of taste. Um, and then there's the inflammatory phase. That's what we, the phase where you get acute respiratory distress syndrome, where you're on oxygen. And a lot of the theory behind that is that your body is basically developing an inappropriate immune response to the virus. And by getting vaccinated, you're essentially training your body to develop an appropriate immune response, which is why you see the dramatic drop off in the rates of hospitalization with vaccination. So that is why vaccine is so, vaccination is so important. And remember, no, va no vaccine is gonna be 100% at keeping you from having symptomatic disease, but the vaccine was designed specifically to reduce hospitalization and death and keep hospitals from being overloaded. And to so that we don't get into the situation that happened in Italy and in parts of this country where you run out of ventilators. And then you're like, well, the next person that comes in, we have nothing. You never want to get to that situation where you have unnecessary, unnecessary death. And for folks that don't get vaccinated, they don't, they don't appreciate this. As they say, you know, I don't trust the medical community. I'm not going to get vaccinated, blah, 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 blah. When your oxygen saturation is 50%, you're going to really trust the medical community. <laughs> when you can't breathe, you're going to trust us. And I mean, that's, that's it. I know that sounds you know, cruel callous, but that's true. We eventually see them. <laughs> so how many of you guys have heard of long COVID before? Good. Oh, man, we got smart people here. Awesome. So when people say, well, I'm just going to get it. I'm just going to go. I'm going to have a party. You know, it's like the old, the old chicken pox parties. Again, something we can vaccinate for. But they're like, hey, let's get the natural disease. You know, it's, it's organic. <laughs> it's all natural. Artisanal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got my artisanal COVID. Yeah. You run, you run this very real risk of developing long COVID. So upwards of 30% of people who get COVID-19 will have symptoms that last over a month. And even if today we are able to vaccinate everyone and eliminate the virus, which 
again, this is a possibility. We can, not today, obviously. Maybe, maybe Tuesday. But we can eliminate it. We are still going to be dealing with the effects of prolonged long-term disability from this. I can't, I mean, it's the mental effects, but also the physical effects from long COVID. Uh, we are dealing with millions and millions of people right now that have, that come to their doctor saying, look, I, ever since I've had COVID, I can't smell anything, I can't taste anything, I get fatigued really easily, I have prolonged shortness of breath. And the problem is we don't have great treatments for this. The best way of preventing long COVID right now is to be vaccinated, the best. Um, so we talked about all this stuff. And then a real key thing is that vaccination also reduces the amount of time you're infectious to others. So with Delta did change things like we talked about, but regardless, the vaccine works extremely well against Delta. There, there have been no coronavirus strains that have yet escaped uh, the, the efficacy of the vaccine. So it's still efficacious against all of them. So all of these variants are, are little point mutations, and they typically are point mutations in the, in the way it attaches to your cells in the spike protein. But they're still minute point mutations. This isn't like a completely de novo virus. And part of the theory is too that if you get too many mutations, then the, the virus, the fitness of the virus reduces substantially. Like it won't be able to attach to cells at all. It won't be able to replicate. Um, so when people say, well, you know, what's the point of getting vaccinated if I still, I got vaccinated and I still got COVID. And then my immediate response is, I'm like, oh, were you hospitalized? I'm like, no, no, you know, I felt, I felt bad for a few days and I'm like, right, right. Cause the vaccine is primarily designed to prevent hospitalization. And it still does reduce symptoms. Absolutely, your risk of symptomatic COVID um, is still reduced by the vaccine, but the point of the vaccine was to keep hospitalizations and death down. All right, so we talked about every one of that. All right, so post-exposure prophylaxis, how many of you guys are familiar with this? A little bit? Cool, monoclonal antibodies. All right, uh, so this is primarily used in the, it's used in the outpatient setting. It's not used in hospitals. So particularly among people who have been either not vaccinated or in populations where the vaccine may not work as well. So imagine, like we talked about, people that are taking biological immunosuppression, uh, you know, chronic high-dose prednisone use. Um, and there's three available monoclonal antibody infusions available. The earlier you can get it uh, after you test positive, the more efficacious it is. Keep in mind, too, that uh, what, there was some guidance, too, that if you have monoclonal antibodies and you haven't been vaccinated yet, they talked about waiting 90 days after getting monoclonal antibodies to be vaccinated. I researched into this a little bit. So the, the theory behind that was that you're less likely, you're, you're not very likely to get reinfected within that 90-day period of getting monoclonal antibodies. And the thought was, well, maybe there, is, there would be some cross-reactivity between vaccine and the monoclonals. Um, but I haven't seen strong data that that actually happens. So in some people where they're very high risk to be hospitalized from COVID, I may vaccinate them if they haven't been vaccinated and they got antibodies earlier than 90 days. But like I said, it's not a substitute for vaccination because the monoclonals don't help your T cells out. So um, they're not training it like the vaccine does.
All right. All right, so this is some of the cool like insider knowledge just for the people in this room. Um, so where are we going? You know, where is, how are things going to change? So we're gonna have more treatments available in the near future. And one of the big limiting factors of this is we've, nev we've never had a Tamiflu against SARS-CoV-2. There hasn't been an oral therapy that people can use because you know, we, we have remdesivir, um, which again works against this uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of the virus but it's IV, and it's used primarily in, in folks who have severe disease. So we need something that people can easily access that can be oral, um, that will hopefully reduce symptoms, reduce the likelihood of developing long COVID, and um, that's coming soon. So oral versions of these and protease inhibitors. All right, so the, the booster recommendations, you guys have heard a little bit about the, the Pfizer booster recommendations. Yeah, one of the biggest problems is these, these recommendations are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly confusing. Of, of like who, and yeah, it's ridiculous. And then weirdly, like government is just saying like, everybody gets a booster. <laughs> They're doing the Oprah thing. And that is, um, that's not true. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna diverge just a little bit in the history of the third dose issue. All right, so it's, it started back in August. So the, the committee that, um, the ACIP I talked about earlier, the uh, Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices, which is a, a part of the CDC, is a group of individuals that vote on vaccine recommendations. Before vaccine recommendations come out, it's a, it's a two-step process. So the FDA has to say, okay, we authorize the use of this from a safety standpoint. And then the ACIP meets together and votes to say, okay, now who should get the vaccine? Like, how can we do this in a way where we're helping the, the highest risk people, making sure that they are prioritized, um, and then have equity um, in our recommendations. So initially in August, their third dose recommendation was specifically for immunocompromised people. Um, so people, the data had suggested that a third dose would help individuals who are on medications like we talked about that reduce the vaccine efficacy. Uh, so we're talking folks with active cancer, people who have had organ transplantation, people who are on chronic immunosuppressive therapy. The data looked really strong for that. And then for some reason that got like a game of telephoned into everyone needs to get a third dose. And we're like, no, 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 that's not correct. Because, and you're wondering why is the, why is the World Health Organization mad about this third dose problem? Well, it's because we have parts of the world where we're still under 10% vaccination. The best way to end the pandemic is to vaccinate the unvaccinated rather than focusing on everybody get a third dose. Because what the data was suggesting is that the vaccine efficacy at, at hospitalization was still pretty strong six months on. Um, and keep in mind that there were two factors at play here too. The first people to get mass vaccinated were healthcare workers and the elderly where the vaccine efficacy was lower. Um, and then Delta, of course, being different than the strains that we had from last year as far as infectivity and the, the rate of hospitalization. So now we have Pfizer recommendations, and that's specifically for folks, again, you wanna make sure it's folks over 65, that's your, your highest risk because the death rate's the highest there. Vaccine efficacy is also lower in those groups. Uh, and then folks who have certain the conditions we talked about earlier, and people who work in high-risk exposure environments, healthcare workers, grocery workers, 
people who have frequent face-to-face -face contact. Uh, that's going to be the folks who are targeted for a third dose six months after their Pfizer dose. And this month, we're going to have recommendations very soon on Moderna and J&J. &J. So if you've been waiting on those, if you had Moderna and J &J, or J &J, uh, and J or J&J, those recommendations will be coming out very soon. FDA on October 14th uh, authorized third dose uh, Moderna. They're actually going to use a lower dose. Uh, for the third dose of the Moderna vaccine. And part of that is based on, on that Moderna's uh, response against symptomatic disease and hospitalization of the three vaccines is the highest. Um, also, when people say, if they haven't been vaccinated, and they say, like, which vaccine do you recommend getting? When the pandemic was first starting and vaccines were first, first available, I said, get whichever one is available to you when there was, it was hard to get the vaccine. But now that we have available vaccine, I tell people to get either of the mRNA vaccines, either, either the Pfizer or the, or the Moderna vaccine. And I, I kind of pushed the J&J &J one to the side. Um, and part of that was because of thrombophilia and, oh my god, I can't, TTS. Um, there was an issue with, it was primarily in women from 20 to 50 with brain bleeds. Um, from the J&J &J vaccine. Again, it's incredibly rare. Um, it, it's about uh, at a rate about three per million. Um, but still, that's, you know, it's a, a potentially fatal consequence. And the vaccine efficacy of the J&J &J vaccine is, especially against just symptomatic disease, is a lot lower uh, than it is with the mRNA vaccine. The J&J &J vaccine is still very good at preventing hospitalization. Uh, but the vaccine efficacy against any disease, any symptoms, is a lot lower than the mRNA ones. So I typically steer people to the either Pfizer or Moderna vaccines when I vaccinate, when I give vaccine guidance to people. And then next year we may be doing um, variant-specific boosters, especially if we have any variants that sort of escape the efficacy of the vaccine. The nice thing about having these platforms, the, the mRNA and the DNA, uh, adenovirus DNA platforms, is that you can modify the vaccine pretty easily. I talked about this yesterday in my talk. Um, the analogy is you have a truck, you have a, a 2020 or 21 Ford F-150 and a 2017. Like the differences are, are mostly cosmetic. The underlying platform behind it is, is similar. So the nice thing about these technologies is that you can change them relatively easily and then uh, build it up to scale quickly, which is why we have those vaccines. All right. I have another QR code <laughs> that you can scan. And this is a much shorter video, so it's great if you're at the urinal. Um, if you only got to pee, this is a better one. Why are we getting more people now? Interesting. Um, well, cool, because it's about to get spicy in here. Anyway, so th this particular video is our techniques that I, I use in my clinic that I adapted for the general public to have those conversations with people who haven't been vaccinated to help convince them. Because believe it or not, the best way you can convince someone is one, to, it's someone that they, they listen to and they trust. So someone that... Oh man, someone's not paying for YouTube Premium. <laughs> I hate that. I wish that, like, I don't make any money off these videos. I don't monetize them. Uh, I wish there's a way I can say, look, please opt me out. This is educational content. But 
yeah, so the video's great. Um, I know I made it. And yeah, I've, I've been able to convince over 100 people who are never going to be vaccinated at this point. But I have a lot of opportunity to do that because I have an outpatient clinic. Um, and it's using a lot of the techniques that I, I use in this video. You know, the important thing is overwhelming them with facts and data is probably not going to help you have those things available when they have questions. But really, you have to come at it from a place of compassion and empathy and concern. And also, you also come from a place of experience because everyone in this room has been vaccinated. So you can talk about, this was my experience with this. Um, and I, those are the things that help convince people. Like when I talk to my patients, they always ask me, well, what did you feel when you got vaccinated? And I'm like, well, I had some arm soreness, lasted about a day. Um, I'm younger, so I'm more likely to have side effects. And when, that's the other thing, side effects. They're really just, it's the body's immune response. It's not really caused by the vaccine, so to speak. Younger people tend to have more of them because the immune response tends to be stronger. So this is what I was just talking about, talking about your experience from getting vaccinated. When people have specific questions, go to evidence-based data sources like CDC or the Infectious Disease Society of America. They have a COVID-19 real-time learning network. That's great. Um, so provide evidence-based responses, uh, or you can say, you know, talk to your physician about that. Um, so we talked about confirmation bias being a mountain to overcome, and it is. Um, so don't give up if someone says no, or when people say, I need to think about it, that's always, that's always a tricky one because that pretty much means that they've already decided they're never gonna do it. Because at first they're like, well, I want more people to get vaccinated before I get vaccinated. And I'm like, okay, we have over 180 million people completely vaccinated in this country alone. Um, and the safety data is extremely good. Well, I need it to be, I need it to be FDA approved and not on an EUA. Okay, Pfizer's been approved now. <laughs> like, and it, it just it becomes another one and another one and another one. And again, it's all it, you're dealing with confirmation bias. So many of these people were not going to get vaccinated before the vaccine even came out. Keep in mind, it's hard. It's going to be really hard. All right, so we're going to do question. Oh wow! All right, cool. All right, go for it. How would you get more physicians to do vaccine teaching? Because like you already said, nurses don't know anything. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Those nurses tend to get the assignment of teaching. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of people who don't believe that nurses know anything. <laughs> like legitimately. Yeah. You joke about it, but you make racist jokes. And real racist people take that as confirmation. People yeah. do disrespect nurses. Yeah. Who do get the role of teaching in hospitals. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's, it's been a big problem because in a lot of hospitals, you look at the rate of, of hospitalization, I'm sorry, rate of vaccination by physician, and the nursing rate is oftentimes lower. Like, there are a lot of nurses that say, well, you know, I don't think the vaccine's going to be helpful. It's tough. It's really tough. Like, I think everyone that is... Medical should be having these conversations, though. Um, I think it's all of our roles to ask about it. So for me, uh, one of the ways I deal with it, and for nurses, is absolutely they can also employ this tactic. Uh, whenever I'm seeing a new patient in the hospital and, and in the outpatient setting, uh, 
asking about coronavirus and influenza vaccination is a standard question that I ask every single person, every time. Yeah. Unless I've documented it, that they have been vaccinated, I'm, I ask about it. If it has nothing to do with why they're there, I still ask about it. If they say I haven't been vaccinated, I have that conversation. So part of it is, is, is making a time to have the conversation with people. And so many of us in the medical profession are, are just willing to live with the no and move on because we're, we're rushed, we have a bunch of patients. And I think it's, it's, it's key when you have a moment to address it, if you can address it, like if you can help move that needle from confirmation bias to say, look, the vaccine's very safe, I can provide you with evidence-based data on this. You, you don't have to hear it from just me, as I, like, as I like to say, like, don't take my word for it. Here is the studies, here is the data, let me help you sort through this and, and show you. I wanna show you that this is safe. I wanna show you that's efficacious. And I know it's, there's a lot of information out there because so many patients just say, oh, I saw it on the TV. I saw this on the TV. And, and this is why I say, get your information from sources that are not ad revenue driven because they're going to prioritize fear over actual good quality information. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question somewhat, but when I see anybody, anyone in the hospital, any patient, I ask them if they've been vaccinated. And if they haven't been vaccinated, you, you, you have the conversation in a non-judgmental and empathetic way. And I didn't, I didn't mention this, but this is key. Look at their situation individually. Rather than provide a blanket recommendation, look at their situation. Say, you have children that are under age 12. You know, you ask about kids, you ask about their profession, you ask about their other medical conditions that may make them higher risk. All of those things. And with both COVID and influenza vaccination, I, I take it a step further into this will affect your financial well-being. If you can't work because you have long COVID, if you're disabled, you know, it, this is like a free insurance that you can get to help reduce your risk of being long-term disabled from this disease, which is a real, real, a real phenomenon that happens. And for me, that has seen so much death and devastation from this disease over the last two years, like this is my number one priority over everything, is to make sure that people are protected and vaccinated and that in a way you're also, you're not just protecting that individual, you're protecting their families, you're protecting their close communities. Like, vaccination is absolute key. Does that help a little bit? I'm going to say it just a little more frankly. Yeah. This is the first time I'm meeting you. This is my first Rollicon. Okay. But the thing is, it's a punch down joke instead of a punch sideways or a punch up, where the dumb character is the nurse, and you made a joke about nurses not knowing anything, and things are stressful for nurses, like incredibly, especially for COVID nurses. Yeah. And if you hear a physician say, well, nurses are stupid, and other people already have that bias that nurses don't know anything, that they are stupid, they're not the ones getting the vaccines, why should I listen to these people? Then you're adding to that system. You went for a really easy punch down, but I really don't super appreciate it. Okay, sorry. I, I try to put a lot of humor into my talks because it's a lot of medical and scientific things, and, and the, hum the humor is often inappropriate, so.
Discussing vaccination? Really? Yeah. And, well, and like, like let it go because it's causing too much friction. You know, they might not, they, people have choices, they might not choose to come to us, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that when you hit somebody from the practical aspect of why you're mentioning this, uh, really making that, like what, uh, what Dr. Dan was saying at the end about, like, focusing it on the person's life and not just making a general statement, like, oh, everybody should be vaccinated. But being able to talk to somebody, I'm a social worker in psychiatry. And so uh, one of the things that I have to tell people is, I hear, I heard you say that one of the things you're hoping for is to have assistance getting housing. There isn't a housing situation I can place you in if you choose to not stay vaccinated. We need to, we need to talk about vaccination and, and the discussion of your ability to receive housing. And that changes the conversation because it becomes very practical to that client. And so being able to say, you know, I mentioned this because I've seen you several times. I remember you telling me that you have a young child. And, you know, your child hasn't had a chance to be vaccinated because those vaccines have not been approved. So I mentioned it to you again. You know, and, and I, I don't think that you berate somebody for not having a vaccination. but. But to, to say, you know, every time I see you, I'm going to mention this because I am your provider and I do care about you. And I think that there's a way in your delivery that you can do so uh, that wouldn't go against what your hospital is saying. Hey, we need our survey numbers to look really great. Right. Um, I have the same gripe because, I mean, psychiatry patients talking about their involuntary hospitalization as a positive situation is pretty low. So, yeah, you know. I'm 
survived COVID and they're saying things like, well, now I've been through the ringer, and they have, so I don't want to risk my health to get on a vaccine. And I'm like, dude, this is why yeah. I don't have a voice three months after. Like, right, right. And also, <laughs> but also, <laughs> like, you know, think, think about, you know, did you know this is something that you don't just catch once? There are other, especially with other variants out there, you know. So there's there's ways to consider um, how to change that conversation to to not make somebody feel like oh it's the COVID question again, you know. Um, anyway, I, yeah. I mean, so one one of the things I've always done is you assess their likelihood for change. I mean, this is great for smoking cessation too. Is you ask them, you know, how if I provide you information on this. How likely are you to change? What, like when I when I talk about smoking with people, uh, you know, if I know that they're a smoker, um, you know, I ask them, you know, have you thought about quitting? Have you had any sort of like plan to quit date? Is this something you want to do right now? And if they say, you know, I love smoking, it's it's part of me. I'm not ready yet. You, you let it go. Um, you know, a lot of us feel like we get talked down you know, for a habit, for example. So uh, the better way to do it is to say, is you, you assess their, their likelihood of change. Like, are they willing to take in information? Are they willing uh, to get vaccinated? So it's, it's a tough situation you're in. I, I, um, I had a, um, medical, a Spanish medical interpreter that I work with in the hospital, and she told me that she got reprimanded for discussing vaccination, which is, it's insane, but and the, the reason they reprimanded her, they said, well, you, are, you, are you medically trained? Well, we all should be discussing vaccination. So it's, it's a tough situation. But I think from a compassion and knowing that these, these vaccinations are so effective at preventing hospitalization and death, like, it is our duty. We all, we all have a duty, not just medical people. We all have a duty to discuss it. So. Yeah, um, so for the, the role play part here in the end, I almost wanted to divide half of you up into anti-vaxxers and half of you into like people to have a discussion with them. Or I wanna say, oh, let's just say vaccine hesitant. Like, or if, if, if you guys have had the discussions with people, I don't know how many of you had, have had discussions with people who have not been vaccinated yet. Like have that discussion to try to convince them. Mm -hmm. Have you guys? My, my dad is 100% never going to get it. Yeah. Trust being the government will never, won't get a flu shot, won't take medicine
I have so many people that say, um, even before the pandemic, they wouldn't get a flu shot because I've never had the flu, which is, okay, you're still at risk. Um, or the flu shot gave me the flu, which is impossible, right? It doesn't. And then some people, they're like, well, I got the flu shot and I still got the flu. Well, vaccines are not 100% effective at preventing symptomatic disease. Like the point of vaccines is usually prevent hospitalization and death. So I mean, there, there are responses to these things, um, but you first have to assess it. How likely is this person to listen? So asking the questions, saying like, if I provide you with information about, you know, the vaccine is very safe, it's very good at preventing you from being hospitalized. And I'm also worried about you specifically because you have heart disease, because you have, you're a smoker or you have lung disease. You know, I'm worried about you or I'm concerned about you being around grandchildren, for example, that haven't been vaccinated. Like you, if you tailor it specifically to that person, you're, more, you're much more likely to reach them. And like I said, you come from a place of, of love and empathy. I think that is really helpful. Yeah, I mean, so I, one of the best ways to, to combat this is you have to essentially make life harder to be unvaccinated, a lot harder. Um, I love what they did in France a few months ago where they said, okay, you can be unvaccinated. You can't go to restaurants anymore. You can't go to theaters. You can't go to bars. You can't go to nightclubs. All of them will require proof of vaccination, all of them. Um, and that's eventually where we're going to have to go, is we, we have to make life much more inconvenient, unfortunately, to get people to be unvaccinated. There's an entire therapy and nursing group on Facebook that is dedicated to people that are looking down the barrel of losing their jobs because they were trying yeah. to get vaccinated and how to get around it. Um, and it's disheartening. And you know, these healthcare workers are frontline. They've seen it. They should be. Um, and, he, and, and I'm not, and of course, I'm not saying that that's what they're doing, but they were doing, you know, um, cause for concern. But these are, these are what they're just like, how can we beat the system here in Florida? Or what state can we move to that can't force the vaccine? So a lot of like, interesting travel here right now is kind of wild. Right. And, right. and I, 
I, I hear the argument that I, I work in a healthcare system here in uh, Georgia, and uh, even before anybody on a national level talked about the possibility that vaccines may be mandated or should be mandated for any workers, my employer said, hey, as you know, you needed this list of vaccines before you were able to work here with the population that we work with to lower your risk and their risk. And those were necessary for employment. And in addition, the COVID-19 vaccine is necessary for employment, period. How do we have a seatbelt? You have to wear a seatbelt, not just for you, but because yeah. you can apply your part. I think, I think America, we love freedom, but we forget that that like great quote, the right to swing my fist into where another person knows begins. Right. Because you, you, you know, yeah, you're free, but that's not just you anymore, right? You can give it to someone, you can give it to someone. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I had a patient recently that was very much in the in the freedom camp, and he said, "Well, I can get drunk and wrap my car around a tree, and it just affects me." And then I point out that like your wife is sitting two feet away from you; she's the one that's you know you can infect her. She's going to have to bury you, right? She's going to have to deal with this. Uh, uh, you. No one ever dies alone. That's the saying I like to say. No one ever truly dies alone. And with COVID-19, death is also not the only horrible outcome that you can have. You can, have, you can be in the ICU on a ventilator for months. And the amount of permanent disability, mental and physical disability that comes from that, can, and, fina and financial ruin that comes from it can be even worse than just wrapping your car around a tree. So why? why Sorry. Yeah, I mean HIPAA rules apply specifically to the medical community. So But even still But then you also run into OSHA. Um, even still, like if you have a tuberculosis diagnosis yeah. It is a public health risk, and you are reported from the hospital medical staff to the board of health in your county that you live in. And if you do not receive treatment, you will be followed, and then you will be you will seek have legal consequences if you do not seek treatment. Uh, I believe syphilis also is at least registered. Yeah, I mean, um, so that, there's reportable. Yeah, and, and, and that is that is where COVID is going. And uh, it, it is a it is a public health risk. You are not in isolation. You are you are making we've seen assault charges, right? Like people knowing we've all had the same Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It happened to me when I was working at the elections November third, this lady came in screaming and then coughed at us, yeah. blew air at us. Yeah. Well, even still, and then demanded her right to vote. Right. If and somebody, had to give it to her. if somebody knows that they their HIV status is that, positive, that's, right? That's and weird. they and and, and and they continue to have unprotected sex without allowing that partner to know that they of their HIV status, and that partner contracts HIV, if there's malicious intent that can be proven, there are prosecutions. And I mean, so so that that is even beyond and outside of the medical community. 
you know, just from a legal standpoint. So, yeah. So, if you guys wanted to, one of the things I thought would be kind of fun is if you've had any specific objections that people have given you, I can teach you how to overcome specific objections. The most recent one I've hit up against is they developed a vaccine for fetal cells. Yes, I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I was like, come on, come on, give it to me. So the, the mRNA vaccines work? So tell them to get the mRNA vaccines. Oh, the like, mRNA. Right, yeah. And that would be our Pfizer. Fi the ones you should get anyway. Yeah, the, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Yes, and also, so another um, so hospital the, system. The J&J one was? I think it was developed using fetal stem, stem lines, but so are so many medical products. Right, it's yeah. absurd. There was a hospital, um, I was reading an article about a hospital that said, okay, so if you're gonna come with this objection, you also have to sign off that you'll never use any of these other products. And I think like Tylenol was on there or ibuprofen. I mean, it was a list of things that you, are, you use on a nearly daily basis. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, so just pointing to the mRNA vaccines. What other objections have you guys heard? I was just going to say, it's kind of out there, but depending on their faith, the Pope has said it's more important to be vaccinated than the moral dilemma of the fetal tissue. Yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with right-wing radicals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am not familiar with any any major religion that has said that you should not be vaccinated. The, the Christian science folks gave a fairly wishy-washy position where they said, like, we leave it up to individual members. Yeah. They're very usually strongly against. They're, they're anti-vax, yeah. And, and, and medical treatment. Yeah. So. There's a few subdenominations of white evangelical that stated it in the product of Satan. Oh, how, how do you overcome that? Uh, you say, like, actually, it was Beelzebub. <laughs> know your book, okay? Jeez. Even Donald Trump has told his supporters, go get back Right, right. Say, like, every, 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 every living president has been vaccinated at this point. Like what, like it is not, and I cannot stress this enough, like vaccination and science is not a political thing. It is a global phenomenon that encompasses people of all sorts of different political beliefs and ideologies. Evidence-based medicine and research, the results are not dictated by a person's political beliefs, right? They're repeatable. That's, that's what science is. It, is. it is repeatable testing. Right, and it, it is not influenced by those things. Science is not, and vaccination is not political at all. So, so the vaccine, the vaccine was produced so quickly. How can we trust the vaccine? Yeah. it came so, out way too quick. I'm not putting that in my body. Right, I don't know what's in it. It, it was developed too quick. Yep, and this goes to that 27-minute video. Uh, when you guys watch it, where I address that particular question. So what, what I do in that case is I talk about, you know, the, the history of how long people have been getting the vaccine throughout the, the phase two and phase three trials, that before the vaccine was released to the general public in December 2020, at that point, people had been 
vaccinated since February, that we had over 70,000 people that completed the phase three trials between Pfizer and Moderna um, and that were studied. And typically, if you're gonna see a issue with a vaccine, you're gonna see it within the first 90 days. Uh, and then also talk about how those, the vaccine platforms that we have in the United States are not, while the, uh, the use of them for a large scale is, is, is new, for something of this scale, those vaccines have been utilized in other vaccine trials and used in humans safely. Yeah. And that over the years, yeah, we've advanced, we've advanced the technology uh, to make them more efficacious. Um, so is that something actually in active use for mRNA or was it just in a research phase before the COVID shot came off? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they, they were using the adenovirus 26 DNA vaccines, which are, it's, it's a similar methodology, which is the, the Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines. Those were used in the Ebola vaccine trials. So they had been, they had been used in vaccine trials for things like Zika before, uh, but they, they were not full-fledged vaccine candidates, but they were tested. They have been tested for a very long period of time, like the better part of a decade. Yeah, I mean, that's what I found out when it first came out, and that's what I started telling everybody, but I was wondering if there was something that was actually mm -hmm. being actively used before that. This was, this was the first large-scale utilization outside of, of limited clim clinical trials. But it's been used. Yeah. All right, what other? Yes. What do you say to somebody who's like, I just don't know what, like, nobody knows what the long-term consequences of this are. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just addressed that. But what, well, one thing is like, well, we do know what the long-term consequences are of actually having COVID at this point. And that we do know that vaccination remains the best way to reduce your risk of developing long COVID. And that is the same thing where for people that say, I want to get natural immunity. I want to just get the disease and then I'll be protected. I've had people that have had, they said, I've had COVID four times and I won't get vaccinated because I have natural immunity. And I'm like, <laughs> The fourth time was the trick. Tell me about that. They're like, I just keep getting boosted and boosted and boosted. Those three cases have been challenging too, especially like a Right. So, and, and that's why I, I said this a million times during the talk is that the vaccine was designed to prevent hospitalizations and death, right? And so when people think breakthrough infections, the news is like breakthrough cases among the vaccinated. And, you know, they interview you know, someone, they're like, yeah, I got, I got the sniffles. So, and, and this is another reason why I say avoid kind of ad revenue based news sources, because oftentimes they will try to give you quote, both sides of an issue, right? Unfortunately, when it comes to vaccination, there is only really one correct side. And then there is like the fringe. So they'll, They'll interview one side and it'll be, you know, a team of researchers or it'll be this, this committee. They are like, vaccination is safe, vaccination is effective. And they're like, now for the opposite point, we found this guy yelling on a street corner in New York. They're like, satellite transmissions are coming through the needles. They're like, that's why they're metal, it's antennas. Right, so, yes. On top of your breakthrough infections, say I'm vaccinated, I go to a big convention like this or bigger, that could be considered high risk, even though most everyone's vaccine has a mask. Is it appropriate to get a PCR test afterwards just to be safe or is that? Yes, okay. absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's what I was saying for conventions, for meet, you know, if you're spending time with new partners, long periods of time, it's absolutely appropriate. 
And it's also appropriate to be the one to start that thread on the Fed. On and say, hey, look, I got tested four days later, and I'm negative. Yeah, wait, you want to post your vaccines? You know, your, your yeah. post-con uh, testing status. Early, earlier, Dan talked about it. He and I had gone to a Dr. Odyssey event, which was an outdoor camping event for a long weekend. Everything was outdoors, but still had to be vaccinated beforehand. They encouraged PCR testing even before that as well. And then additionally, everybody's that all these threads started on the on the uh, the on Fed under yeah. Dr. Odyssey saying, you know, hey, it's been four days. Everybody needs to get tested and post your results. And 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 it, holding people, holding your community accountable, holding your people accountable, is is key. It was really nice. I don't think I saw a single person get a positive result. There, there, was, there, was, so one. there was one. There was one. And yeah. they so it was mentioned like there was one person who did, and yeah. it wasn't said who. Uh, and then that person came forward and said it was me. Okay. Yeah. And like so, it, it's just you know, I and this is these are the events I was at. This is when I was there. This is what I was wearing. Mm -hmm so that other people would know if they had come in contact. Gotcha, so like the contact person of sorts. So absolutely, it was almost like a, it was a crowdsourcing uh, a contract trace. <laughs> yeah, contact trace. Yeah, but I mean, amongst all the people that were there though, the one person that got it, that's really good odds. Incredible. Really good odds. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, I think, all right, we got one. Last one. Right. Uh, is it possible to get a breakthrough infection and still suffer from long COVID, or does the vaccine prevent long COVID? Yeah, I mean, so, I would, I'd be cautious about saying that long COVID is impossible in folks who have had symptomatic breakthrough infections. It's, it's very, very rare. It's a lot less rare than in the unvaccinated populations. I see a lot of long haulers, and a lot of long haulers, and what I found to be most common is that they've gotten the first shot that they ever got. They got, they got it. Right. Or they got infected right when they got the first shot, and it kind of created like a... I don't know why, but it made it worse, and yeah, so a lot of people... Yeah, I mean, they, they wouldn't have been protected at that point mm -hmm. if they had just been vaccinated. But then those are the people yelling at the well, I got it, and I got sick anyway. <laughs> right. Again, it's like confirmation bias. You're, you're always dealing with that, but like the most important takeaway from all of this, guys, is please continue to have those conversations with people. We all have a role to play here in ending this, and it's endable. It's, it's endable. We just have to reach those folks who haven't been vaccinated and, and help convince them or force them. As, as, a, as somebody who works in healthcare and social worker, I, I find that every opportunity I have to work with a person repeated means I have a chance to educate that person about healthcare, about their illness, about the proper treatments, et cetera, you know, within the scope of what I do. And I had the time, being a social worker, to spend a little bit more time than what the doc has to spend the time with the patients. And so I, I, am, I, I, I look at every single opportunity that I work with somebody as a chance to, to, to continue that conversation. And, uh, and sometimes you get pushback, but it's very rare. Yeah. It's, I, more, it's more rare than common. If I can have you guys do, do me a favor, pop open your Gather app, and then... Um... Yeah, come on to, down to this, this panel and then give me a little rating. And then uh, if, you, if you vote five stars, you get to have more desserts. <laughs> <laughs> Even if not, you get to have more desserts. Yeah, you want to carry them home. that's right. That's right. Thank you all. Uh, Thank you all. Thanks for coming. You have been listening to The Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. 
Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast, and we welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max.